We're back in John 4 this morning after one week break last week. And we're continuing, in fact, we're finishing the narrative of Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well outside of Sychar. Jesus began this conversation by saying in verse 10, If you knew, if you knew, it says two things, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink. In other words, if you knew what and if you knew who, then you would have asked me for a drink. By the end of verse 26, Jesus has told her both the what and the who. Jesus has told her who it is who is speaking to her. The Messiah, the Christ, the Teheb, as the Samaritans called him. I who speak to you am he, verse 26. And Jesus had told her what the gift of God is. He used the metaphor of spring of living water welling up within her to eternal life. And this, especially in view of Jesus' claim to be the Messiah, would have been understood in Jewish and Samaritan categories to be God himself, a fountain of living water, a fountainhead of living water. So Jesus was going to give her a new relationship to God, whereby she would be forgiven for her sins and granted eternal life, and she would be satisfied. So by verse 26, Jesus has told her the what and the who. He started by saying, if you knew what I could give you, and if you knew who I am, by the end of verse 26, he's told her, this is who I am, and this is what I can give you. All of this was covered in greater detail in the last two sermons on John 4. So you can go back and listen if you miss them. But that's a summary which provides the necessary context for understanding today's message. That's what's transpired in the conversation so far between Jesus and this woman. And so today we pick up at verse 27. Just then his disciples came back. Just after Jesus finishes saying, I who speak to you am he. Just after Jesus has finished telling her who he is and what he can do for her. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. The scripture doesn't tell us, but no doubt they wondered and marveled that he was talking with a Samaritan woman, no less. Because normally men and women wouldn't have this kind of informal interaction with one another. Let alone a Jewish man with a Samaritan woman. So that's why the disciples marveled. But it says, no one said, what do you seek? They didn't say to the woman, what do you seek? Why are you talking to Jesus? Nor, why are you talking to a woman? They didn't say to Jesus, what are you doing talking to her? They didn't say anything to her. They didn't say anything to him. They came back. They were surprised, but they didn't say anything to either one of them. And this statement about the absence of questions from the disciples simply informs the reader that when the disciples came back, it didn't derail the conversation. It didn't change the conversation's trajectory. The conversation simply took its natural course in spite of the disciples coming back. Jesus had said, I who speak to you am he. The disciples came back, but nothing really changed as a result of the disciples coming back. We're not told, but maybe Jesus and the disciples exchanged a little bit of small talk, greeted one another perhaps, which would have given the woman a second to process, to think about 
a moment to realize the import of what Jesus had just said. I who speak to you am he. But the disciples coming back didn't really derail the conversation that he and her had been having. It didn't change the trajectory of the conversation that he and her had been having. Therefore, the so, at the beginning of verse 28, so, the woman, therefore the so refers back to verse 26 instead of referring to verse 27. It's not that the disciples came back and so, therefore, the woman went into the town. It's that Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So, the woman went into town. I who speak to you am he. So, the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? This was her response to what Jesus said. I who speak to you am he. The response of the woman to the conversation that she has had with Jesus was to go and tell others about Jesus. Now, strictly speaking, the question, can this be the Christ, could be interpreted as uncertainty. However, this same question is referred to in verse 39 as the woman's testimony. And we see in verse 41, it says, Many more believed because of his word, which implied that she believed because of his word. And so we're not left without clues as to how to take this question, can this be the Christ? It seems rather than understanding this as an uncertainty, that we should take it as a softly stated affirmation. Sometimes people are not as blunt or direct or forceful as we might be, as I might be, or another might be, in the way that they state things. Some people, some people might say, well, I wonder if you could do it like this instead. And what they really mean is you should do it like this instead. It seems that this was just the woman's soft-spoken way of saying, this is the Christ. This is the Christ. Because it says that she went into the town and bore testimony, verse 39. Verse 41 says, many more believed, which implies that she believed. And so Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then the disciples come back and it it dawns on this woman. This is the Christ. She believes this is him. This is the Teheb, as the Samaritans called him. This is the Messiah. This is the Christ. So... She went away into town, leaving her water jar. That's why she came in the first place, remember? She left her water jar. Perhaps it was just, now the water jar, never mind about that. It's a side issue. It's, it's unimportant. It's peripheral in view of what has just happened. It's like if you, if you go out to the standpipe and then something really drastic happens. Someone gets shot up in the street. You don't sit there and finish put the cap on and run back inside, right? You, you just run inside and leave your water there because something more important has happened. The woman realizes this is the Christ. This is the Teheb. This is the Messiah. So 
She leaves her water jar and goes into town. And in her own soft way of speaking, she tells others, this is the Christ. The response of the woman to the conversation that she has had with Jesus thus far is to go and tell others about Jesus. Therefore, the flow of this whole narrative, if we zoom out and look at the whole narrative that we've covered in three sermons up till now, the flow of this whole narrative in John chapter 4 is that the woman is evangelized by Christ. The woman believes And then the woman herself evangelizes others. Jesus evangelized her. Jesus testified to her about himself and called her to faith in himself. That's evangelism. The woman believes Jesus' testimony and has faith in him. Then the woman goes and tells others about Jesus, testifies to them, gives testimony to them about him and calls them to faith in him. The woman is evangelized by Christ. The woman believes, and then the woman herself evangelizes others. That's what happens. Those are the facts of this narrative. Jesus offers some explanatory comments to his disciples in verses 31 to 38. Well, the woman's off speaking to everybody in town. And we're going to focus this morning on two of the implications of his comments. The first implication of Jesus' comments is that the Samaritan woman who has believed is part of a harvest. The disciples brought Jesus some food in verse 31, but Jesus says he has other food and doesn't need the food they bought. Unsurprisingly, this comment puzzles the disciples. Now look at verse 34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And then immediately after that, Jesus begins talking about a harvest in verse 35. Now Jesus is not completely changing the subject between verse 34 and verse 35. Rather, Jesus is continuing in verse 35 to develop the thought that he began in verse 34. So there is something that's the will of the Father, something that's the work of the Father. And what is the Father's will and what is the Father's work? Jesus goes on to talk about a harvest. The Father's will is a harvest. The Father's work is harvesting. The work that Jesus has been doing then which has been like food to him, the will of the Father that Jesus has been bringing to fulfillment then is the work of harvesting. That's what Jesus has been doing, in other words, with this woman. Jesus, in his conversation with the woman at the well, has been harvesting. The Father's will is that Jesus harvests. The work of the Father which Jesus says, doing that is like food to me. That work is harvesting. And Jesus has been doing it. And it's been so satisfying to him. He's saying, to be doing that work, 
that he doesn't even want to eat. He's, he's probably making a point with his disciples. Let's be honest, he probably was still hungry. But sometimes you might miss a meal to make a point. This is probably just an instructive thing. He's saying there's something better than food. There's something more nourishing, more satisfying, namely to do the will of God. So he forgoes this meal to teach his disciples something. The Father's will is that Jesus harvests. The work of the Father is harvesting. And the Samaritan woman implicitly is part of that harvest. Let's consider each of those two things a little bit more deeply. First, our definition of harvesting is in order. As Jesus' metaphor might not be immediately intuitive to us. After all, literal harvesting is bringing crops in from the field for processing and consumption. Jesus' metaphor of harvesting does not mean that God is going to process and consume you. In actuality, Jesus means something like this. That we will be gathered up to belong to God and to be used for His purposes. That there's a field from which God wants to gather some things in for Himself and for His purposes. This is, this is much more of the thrust of the metaphor. God doesn't sustain his life by feeding on Christians or something like that. That would be pushing the metaphor much too far. It's just something like we're going to be gathered up for God. Gathered up to God. This metaphor highlights at least three things. Firstly, it highlights the work of God in preparing people for harvesting. The harvest implies a farmer. You don't just go harvest randomly in just some random plot of brush or bush foliage. You don't just go out and say, well, it's harvest time and go out there and just see what you can scrounge up. Oh, here's a few little berries here. You know, a few pieces of fruit here. You don't go do that. That's not, that doesn't fall within the purview of the word harvest. Harvest implies that there's a crop that's been intentionally planted, cultivated, so on and so forth. And now it's time to be harvesting. The metaphor implies the work of a farmer. Beforehand, and actually in the harvesting. The farmer works to get a harvest ready, and then the farmer works in harvesting. This harvest is called the Father's work. Verse 34. Men are dead in their trespasses and sins, and they have been ever since Adam sinned way back in the garden. We read in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And then a few verses later, you know what it says? Like the rest of mankind. It wasn't just the Ephesian Christians who were dead in their trespasses and sins. They were like the rest of mankind when they were dead in their trespasses and sins. And so... Going all the way back to the garden, 
all men have been dead in their trespasses and sins from the cradle to the grave but for the intervention of God. Romans 3 and verse 23 is a familiar verse for many. Many of you likely know it by heart. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But you know what the end of verse 22 says? For there is no distinction. And you know the context of that passage? It's Paul establishing that Jews and Gentiles alike are both under sin. In Romans 1 and Romans 2, and up until that point in Romans 3, that's what Paul's been driving at. Both Jews and Gentiles alike are under sin. And then he comes to this point. There is no distinction. No distinction between Jews and Gentiles. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so if anyone is going to be harvested, if anyone is going to be gathered up to God, God must do a work beforehand, before people are ready to be harvested. God must make them alive. If God does not regenerate, Evangelism is like preaching to dry bones, as in Ezekiel chapter 37. The Lord asked the prophet, can these bones live? Oh Lord, you know. Prophesy to these bones. And as Ezekiel preaches to these bones, God makes them alive. Apart from that work of causing tendons and flesh and skin to come upon them, apart from the Lord breathing life into them, those dry bones would not live. There could be no harvest in that valley but for the work of a farmer. Planting, watering, cultivating, such that there is a harvest ready to be brought in, in that valley. If there is a harvest out there, given the fact that men by nature are dead in their trespasses and sins, Ezekiel 37 is meant to be a visual portrayal of the ability of people to cause themselves to live and the ability of preachers to cause themselves to live. If the state of mankind is like that visual and yet there is a harvest to be had out there, then there must have been a farmer at work getting a harvest ready. This is why Jesus says that the harvest is the Father's work. If God does not regenerate, evangelism is like preaching to dry bones, as in Ezekiel 37. But if God does regenerate, then the dry bones may live. The metaphor implies not only the work of the farmer, but the will of the farmer, the decisions of the farmer, the intentionality of the farmer. 
what he has planted will grow, not something else. The farmer doesn't just go out there and say, well, I'm going to put some water on this soil and see what happens. I'm going to every morning wake up, irrigate this ground, and in a few months, let's see what happens. Nor does he plant tomatoes and then find in a few months he has potatoes. The harvest implies also an intentionality. Jews and Gentiles alike, we've established, are under sin. But Romans 11 tells us that God has consigned all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. You see, God is preparing a harvest not only of Jews, but also of Gentiles. There is a harvest to be had not only from among the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious elite, but from among the tax collectors and sinners. From among the Samaritans. And all the way to the ends of the earth. Go make disciples of all nations. You see, God has planted Jewish and Gentile seeds in his field, so to speak. And God is bringing a harvest to fruition from among all nations. We see that this was God's intention in many places throughout the scripture. Going back, in fact, all the way to the Old Testament. All the way back to Eden. When God said to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you, who did that affect? All nations. All nations. But God said at that same time that a seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. And who would that affect? All nations. It wouldn't just be that the serpent would be banished from a certain geographical region so that he can bite the people out there, but not the people in here. When his head was crushed, it benefited all nations, just as the cursing of the ground affected all nations. It's just a general implication at that early stage. But then to Abraham, God says that his in his seed, And Paul makes the point in Galatians. He didn't say to your seeds, but to your seed. Singular, which is Christ. In your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Just to take one more example, though we could walk through the Old Testament and multiply examples. Psalm 86 and verse 9 says, All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. And so this metaphor implies that it is the will of God and the work of God That there is a harvest prepared, a harvest to be brought in, 
God has been doing something behind the scenes, underneath, such that, and this brings us to our next point, the fields are white for the harvest. The urgency of the harvest. Do you not say, verse 35, yet there, there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? This is probably just four months before the harvest. And Jesus is just saying, look, you think harvest time is four months from now, but I'm telling you, look right now. You think the harvest time is still a few months away, but look, right now there's a harvest. It's the Father's will. It's the Father's work. He's brought a harvest to fruition. It needs to be gathered in, and it needs to be gathered in now. Not a few months from now. There are Samaritans ready to be gathered in now. This is the Father's will. This is the Father's work. We're seeing here in the coming of Christ, the arrival of the Messiah, the I who speak to you and he phase of history, that the harvest is now in the woman's seed, the serpent's head is about to be crushed. In the woman's seed, all the nations of the earth are to be blessed now. Not four months from now, now. Already, already the harvest has begun. Look, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. What Jesus is saying is that the harvest has already been happening. He's been doing it implicitly, right? The Father's been doing it, but also others have been doing it, he says. Right? This is not the first evangelism that ever happens. But what he's saying is, look, now those who are going out to sow are catching up to the reapers because the reapers aren't even finished bringing in what's in the field. There's so much now that the sower and the reaper are out there together. They're tripping over one another. There's a traffic jam in the fields because there's so much reaping to be done. This is something like what Jesus is saying here. Look, the Father wills that there be a harvest. The Father is working towards a harvest. And it's urgent. It's right now. Don't put it off. Go and reap. Now. And we see here that the harvest is joyful. So that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. Verse 36. The harvest, the harvesting of the Samaritan woman was satisfying to Jesus, as I mentioned earlier, like food to a hungry man. It was joyful. The disciples may be likewise satisfied by entering into this harvest. This doesn't mean that if we evangelize, we don't need food. I really think that Jesus was probably just intentionally exercising some restraint and some discipline to make a point to his disciples. He probably was hungry for the food that they brought him. 
But just like he asked the woman for a drink and then never ended up drinking anything, he sent the disciples to go get him some food and then never ended up eating anything because he was making a point. To the woman, he was making the point that God is like a spring of water that satisfies you and gives you life. To the disciples, he was making the point that doing the work of harvesting is as nourishing and satisfying as food. The disciples may be likewise satisfied by entering into the harvest. So the Samaritan woman is part of the harvest that the Father sent the Son into the world to reap. She is one of those Jews and Gentiles that God intends to be gathered up into his barn, into his storehouse. The woman, the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well is part of the harvest. That's the first implication of Jesus' explanatory comments in verses 31 to 38. The second implication is that the Samaritan woman is a harvester. She's part of the harvest, but she's also a harvester. If harvesting is gathering God's people to him to be used for his purposes, the Samaritan woman herself has now begun to harvest. Look, she's now doing what Jesus was doing. And what Jesus was doing was harvesting. Therefore, she's harvesting now. She is doing to others what Jesus did to her, testifying to Jesus' identity and his ability to provide salvation through a new relationship to God. The Samaritan woman has already gone into the fields and begun to reap. She's she's in town testifying of Jesus, verse 39 tells us. And many from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. So you see, she was harvested by Jesus, and now all of these others in Sychar are being harvested by her. So this woman is both part of the harvest and she's a harvester. What does she do when she comes to faith in Jesus? She goes and talks to others about Jesus. This is, again, the flow of the passage. Jesus evangelizes the woman. The woman believes and then the woman evangelizes others. The woman gets harvested and then the woman goes to work in the harvest. Now, I just want you to visualize for a moment what that, what that harvest would look like if we use our imaginations. Where you go out to bring in the sugar cane from the fields. And as you harvest the first plant, it pops up and starts harvesting one row over. And as it harvests another plant, it pops up and goes one row over and starts harvesting likewise what would be happening would be an exponential harvest. If that which was harvested popped up and itself became a harvester, there would be this exponential harvest happening. And that's exactly, exactly what Jesus says is the Father's will and the Father's work. Those who are harvested are to look and see that the fields are white for the harvest. 
and there to go out and be harvesting. And the sower is going to rejoice together with the reaper. They're going to be out there working at the same time. They're to go out and join others in the field. And there's going to be this exponential harvest happening. This is exactly what Jesus says is to happen. And I want you to think about this. This is exactly what has been happening in church history. People think the church is losing, you know. But only if you look in like a small lens of 50 years or 100 years. Think about up until the advent of Christ Jesus. There was only true worship and basically a little pinprick on the, on the map. But what happened since Jesus ascended and poured out his spirit upon all those who were gathered in the upper room? Look at how far the gospel spread. Look at the exponential harvest that is happening in the world. We're now here in this little island of Barbados. How far from Jerusalem? I don't know how many miles, but it's a long way. This is exactly what's happening in church history. The numbers may decline here and there in pockets. But do you see that Christ is building his church and the gates of hell are not prevailing? Do you see that there is an exponential harvest happening? As Jesus harvested those first disciples and then sent them out to be harvesters and then more people were harvested and then they themselves became harvesters. Do you see that the gospel has spread throughout much of the known world? There are still people groups yet to be evangelized. But a lot of this world has been reached. A lot. Because those who are harvested are to themselves become harvesters. Like the Samaritan woman, each and every Christian is part of the harvest and each and every Christian is to be a harvester. We're to be like that plant that itself gets harvested and then pops up and starts harvesting other plants. We're to be like that. Just like this woman was. Having had it dawn on us who Jesus is. We are to go into town, so to speak, and testify of Jesus and call others to faith in him, as the Samaritan woman did. Having ourselves been evangelized and having come to faith, we now ought to go like the Samaritan woman did and tell others also. God willed your salvation. God has been working towards your salvation, Christian. At some point, you were harvested as you were evangelized. As this woman by the well in Sychar was harvested. Consider that. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. There was nothing to harvest. Just chaff. No wheat. 
but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved you, even when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, made you alive together with Christ. He gave you those eyes to see and those ears to hear so that when someone came and shared the gospel with you, it didn't fall on stony ground. The birds didn't come and take it away from the path. It fell on good soil. God prepared you to be harvested. The grace of that. That the harvest that's happening worldwide is God's will and God's work. Is a tremendously beautiful and encouraging way to think about global evangelism and even local evangelism. That God is at work preparing a harvest and harvesting. That it's His will and His work to do so. And that we are called to enter into the Father's will and the Father's work in this respect, as Jesus did and as the Samaritan woman did. It's encouraging to think that God has harvested us. And it's imperative that we understand that part of what we are to be doing is to be harvesting others. It's not only the way this story unfolded. It's not as if this story just merely happened to unfold this way, where the woman was harvested and then went to harvest others. The woman heard and believed and then went to tell others. It just so happened to be that way. It's not the case that it merely happened to be in this instance. Jesus is teaching here that this is the normative pattern. I sent you, he says. He has been sent, right? Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. And then Jesus says in verse 38, I sent you to reap. The Samaritan woman is naturally doing what we all ought to be doing. We've been sent to harvest. One obvious application of this passage in God's providence is participation in our evangelism weekend, which is coming up this weekend. This happens from time to time. You can't, you can't plan it this way months out that a sermon series would just so happen to be at a certain place at a certain time. This is the Lord's providence that we'd be right here in John chapter 4, just as we have this evangelism weekend planned. It's an obvious application. It's a low-hanging fruit. <laughs> hmm, I wonder what, what, what I could do as a Christian here in Barbados and Covenant Reformed Baptist Church to be part of this harvest. Man, if only our church was having an evangelism weekend or something like that. Make it a priority to be here. Friday night, 6 to 9 p.m., we're doing some training here in this church building. And then Saturday at 4, we'll meet together again and go out into this neighborhood. Understand what Jesus said here. 
The fields are white for the harvest. And he didn't just mean at that particular time. He meant as a result of the messianic age dawning. As a result of Christ Jesus coming, now all the nations of the earth are to be blessed. Remember the teaching in Romans chapter 11, that the Jews were broken off in order that the Gentiles may be grafted in. There's a sense in which God is opening up salvation to the whole world in a way that he hadn't before the coming of the Messiah. We see in the Old Testament, of course, people like Rahab or others, Gentiles who came to find shelter under the wings of the God of Israel. It's not as if salvation was ever closed to Gentiles per se. But there's a sense in which God is dealing much more widely with Gentiles as a result of the Messiah's coming and the Jewish rejection. There is a harvest to be had from among the Jews and the Gentiles. God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. The fields are white for the harvest in all the world, not just in Israel, but in Samaria. Not just in Judah, but in Samaria. Not just in Israel, but in the Gentile lands. The fields are now white for the harvest. The Father's will may be done. We may enter into the Father's work, which is harvesting. And we may do that right here in Map Hill. Right here in Barbados. The fields are white for the harvest. Don't say a few more months. The fields are white for the harvest now. And we who have been harvested are called to be ourselves harvesters. So join us if you can this weekend as we try to do some evangelism in the area around the church building. But obviously I'm not so naive as to think that that's the only application or as if that's a necessary application in the sense that you'd be sinning if you don't come. I'm not going to tell you that. It's not the only way to evangelize. You don't technically have to come this particular weekend for this particular program. That's not mandated in the Word of God. But Christian, I would push this upon you. You have to evangelize. You have to harvest. You do have to do that. One way or the next. God is going to call you to account for whether you have been part of this going to make disciples. Whether you have been part of this work that God is doing here in this world, which is harvesting. God is going to require an account from you in that respect. And so this weekend, if you're busy, no problem. You've got something else planned. No problem. But you've got to figure out another way to evangelize. And if you're not busy this weekend, you still don't have to come to this program that's happening. I don't like to put unbiblical expectations upon our church members. You have to be worshiping on Sundays because it's the Lord's Day and God mandates that. You don't have to be coming to evangelism training on 
Friday, August 16th at 6 p.m. The Lord doesn't mandate that. But I would ask you to consider, though, why wouldn't you come? And if it's just because evangelism is not your thing, that's not really an acceptable answer. If it's because evangelism is uncomfortable to you, that's not really an acceptable answer either. Because the imperatives that are recorded for us in God's Word aren't subject to change depending on how we feel about them and whether or not we prefer them. And it's so clear throughout all of Scripture that those who are harvested are also to be harvesters. And so in running a program, we're not trying to say this is the only way that you can do it or you have to do it this way. But what we, what we are trying to do is actually make it easy for you, easy for us, myself included, to do evangelism. It's just one way, like community group is one easy way to build relationships with others in the church. It's not the only way. You don't have to do it that way. But just knowing that Christians are going to be in such and such a place on Wednesday nights every week, that does make it easier to do relationships. And likewise, evangelism programs make it easier to do evangelism. And so, let me just lay the general imperative on you to evangelize. This week, you need to be a harvester. Don't say the harvest isn't ready yet. People are already out there reaping, Jesus says. The fields are white for the harvest with the dawning of the messianic age. In Christ Jesus, all the nations of the earth are being blessed. All nations that God has formed shall come and worship before him and glorify his name. And that happens through evangelism. You have to be doing evangelism, Christians. I have to be doing evangelism. If you don't, it's a sin. If I don't, it's a sin. So let me lay that imperative upon you. And then just offer you. Just hold out. Let's learn together. Let's grow together. Let's try together. Let's struggle and make mistakes together. Let's have the awkward conversations with neighbors that no one likes to have together. But let's, let's together here at Covenant Reformed Baptist Church, let's, let's make sure that we're not just a harvested church, a church full of harvested people, merely. We are that and we ought to be that, a church full of regenerate people who have been harvested by God, gathered to Him, set apart for His purposes. But let's endeavor not to be merely a harvested church, a church full of people who have been harvested, but let's aim also to be a harvesting church, a church full of people that are harvesting, that are out in the fields, as it were, reaping, entering in, as Jesus did in this passage, into the Father's work, entering in as the Samaritan woman did in this passage into the Father's work, entering in as Jesus instructed his disciples to in this passage into the Father's work, doing the Father's will as Jesus did in this passage, 
doing the Father's will as the Samaritan woman did in this passage, doing the Father's will as Jesus instructed his disciples to here in this passage, doing that will and entering into that work is harvesting. Like the woman at the well, like the Samaritan woman, each and every Christian is both part of the harvest and is a harvester. Let's aim to be not merely a harvested church, but also a harvesting church.